Good morning, Providence. Let's pray. Father, as we sing these things this morning and as we observe the Lord's Supper, as we have prayed together, as we've heard the Scriptures read, we rejoice that all of these things are true, even as we affirm to You, as we perhaps in in casual conversation have confessed to one another this morning that we, we currently feel these dangers, toils, and snares that beset us. We feel these even now. And we have need of endurance as we run this race. We pray, Father, that as we study Your Word this morning, that You would grant us both to look back and to look forward, that we might find help to endure and to cross over into your gracious land that you've prepared for us. We have need of endurance. We pray, Lord, that you would help us this morning providing it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be closing out the chapter this morning, so if you'll stand with me, we'll read this passage beginning in verse 32 and continuing through 39. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You may be seated. Our youth had a had an overnighter here on Friday night, Friday night into Saturday morning. If you were a part of that, if you were one of our, our young people at the overnighter, would you raise your hand? Just want to see how many we've got here. Okay. If you were an adult volunteer, would you raise your hand? Okay, look, look at these people, look at these adult volunteers. This is a big deal. 
generally these are 12-hour ordeals, okay? And it's interesting to see the disparity between the endurance of the students versus the adult volunteers. 12 hours again, there may, there may be a few of these students who sleep, but most of them stay up the whole time, not the adults. We have learned over the years that adults can't do this. They now split these things up into four-hour shifts. They have three four-hour shifts. What the youth do in 12 hours, it takes three adults to cover that same amount of time. And these volunteers, at the end of their four-hour shift, they look like they need medical attention. Like, call the squad and get them on an IV or something. I, I typically work on Saturdays, and so I, I'm walking in here in the aftermath of this, and I always do the same things. As I, as I look at these adult volunteers, I, I'm thinking, Lord, may you bless these people for serving us this way, and will you please preserve their lives? Because they just look like they've been run over. Now, three, three of the students that were here Friday night, they stayed up all night, and then they came to the, the prospective members meeting yesterday morning where they listened to the elders talk for four hours. I mean, that, that is insane endurance. And so th th those of us on this side of youth, we can all say amen to the fact that endurance, physical endurance, it wanes as the years pass by. But here's some good news. Some good news from, from our text and from the book of Hebrews as a whole. Spiritual endurance to run the race is available to everyone, no matter what age they find themselves in the faith. The author of Hebrews says in verse 36, you have need of endurance. We all need strength to hang in there. We all need endurance to stay in the race. And, and here, he tells everyone in the church where to find it. Where, where, where you get this endurance. And this is a message that we, that we find over and over in the Bible. The Bible consistently tells, tells God's people to do two things. Look back and look forward. The Lord repeatedly reminded the people of, of their past with Him. We see this particularly in the Old Testament. One of God's favorite descriptions of Himself in the Old Testament is, is not a name, but an event I am the God who led you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I am the God who redeemed you from slavery in Egypt. Over and over. And that's not for nothing. Because when we find that in the Scriptures, the point is recall the past. Look what happened back there. I can be trusted right now because of what I did for you back then. Look backwards, the Bible tells us. And look forward. The Bible repeatedly turns our attention toward a future hope. And that starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, where God said He would send a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And shortly after that, God promised Abraham that He would send a seed who would, through whom He would bless the whole world. God would send a seed through David, who would become a king, who would rule in righteousness and justice. God would bring His people into a better land. 
You find that over and over in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we're repeatedly told to consider the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus Himself said in John 14, I will return and take you to be with me, that where I am, you may be also. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul calls our attention to the return of Christ and then writes, encourage one another with these words. This idea that Jesus is returning. Put this in front of each other all the time. And we find that idea repeatedly in the epistles. It's in 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Corinthians 4. Titus 2, 2 Thessalonians 1, on and on. Look forward to that glorious hope. Look back and look forward. That is where we find encouraged to endure in the present. The bulk of the book of Hebrews has been something like the building of a theological case that Jesus is superior to any other avenue for navigating this world and entering God's rest. Jesus is the only way that someone can be reconciled to God. He's the great high priest who has offered up a singular sacrifice of Himself that cleanses men from their sin such that upon their following Him in repentance and faith, they can enter God's eternal presence. And further, the author has made the point that Jesus is the only one who offers the strength and help that we need to endure the difficulties of this life and enter the next. Now, Hebrews is not just a theological treatise. It has not been written just to, just to help us understand Jesus better, but rather the intent of the whole book is to move us to endure, to move us to persevere in faith to the end. For the previous two weeks in our study, we've seen the author pivoting from that largely theological discourse toward practical application. And a couple of weeks ago, we saw that he gives us three practices of perseverance. Three practices of perseverance. These are the things that we should do in light of all the teaching that he's given us in Jesus. And those three things, again, are drawing near to God, holding fast the confession of our hope, and encouraging others to endure to the end. Last week, the author gave us some things to think about regarding what happens if we don't persevere, if we don't cling to Jesus in faith. And that was a very heavy message, but a gracious one. Because God wants us to know, if we reject Jesus, there is no hope for forgiveness. We would have only to anticipate the, the wrath of a righteous, omnipotent judge. Now, having given us that warning, now the author turns to give us some encouragement. He, he wants to give us a positive encouragement to engage in those three practices of perseverance. He wants us to think about our perseverance in the past and how we were able to persevere and let that fan the flames of our confidence as we look toward the finish line. That brings us to the first component of the author's exhortation, which is meditate on your past. Meditate on your past. Look with me again at verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to 
through reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. In these few verses, we have a straightforward command, and that one word is recall. Recalling is slightly different than remembering. We might think of remembering as as something of a passive activity. It's kind of like files on your computer. Remembering is, is like just storing files on the hard drive. It's there. You could open that file up whenever you want. That's remembering. Recalling is different. To recall is is like calling that file up, opening it on the computer, putting it on the screen, and interacting with it. To recall is to intentionally think about something. But what? What is it that he wants us to intentionally think about? Think about life after your conversion when your faith was tested. And here he reminds these original readers of when they had endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Now, just to, to, to be very clear, he, he does not have in mind, it seems, health issues or financial problems or the typical difficulties that all people encounter in this life. What he's talking about specifically is difficulty resulting from following Jesus. Because that is the temptation that these people are facing. They're they're facing a temptation to fall away because of the difficulty that they've encountered because they are Christians. And in the case of these readers, their hard struggle with sufferings has taken two broad forms. Their own hardship and that of their loved ones. And it is brilliant of the author to, to give us these two categories because with these two categories, he covers all the bases. Some among us this morning have experienced some kind of hardship because of our faithfulness to Christ. Because of our naming the name of the Lord Jesus, or our sharing the gospel, or our obeying the Bible in ways that are countercultural. For one of those ways, we have maybe lost relationships, friends, family members. Some of us have been held back in our careers. Some have been hated for doing the right thing because Christ is their master. All of that is trying, tries us to say the least. Others of us who may not have endured those kinds of things, we love people who have. My wife has had difficulties in in her work because of following Jesus. She has been tried in that. And what I have found is that that is a trial for me as well because I love her. It tears me up when she is mistreated because she's following Jesus. Now, by bringing up these two categories, your sufferings, other sufferings, the author covers everything. And in, in verses 33 and 34, he gives two examples of each, two examples of their own sufferings, two examples of the sufferings of their loved ones. In the beginning of verse 33, he notes that, that the recipients, they were the victims of public reproach and affliction. Some kind of insults because of their faith in Christ. 
some other kinds of trouble that he just labels affliction. That can, that, can, that can be a lot of different things. That could be economic problems, meaning maybe they lose their job or, or they don't advance in, in the society as they would have otherwise. Maybe they've been ostracized by family or the business community. Public humiliation is what he's talking about because they were Christians. And we ought not downplay this just because it, it is the, 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 on the easier end of, of persecution. Some people among us carry with them today the scars of being publicly humiliated decades ago. Public humiliation, this is not a small thing. It, it, it's a heavy thing to carry, especially when you're carrying it for doing the right thing. At the end of verse 34, he recalls that their property was plundered. Other people came and stole their stuff because of their faith in and obedience to Jesus. Now, all, all human beings, no matter where they are, no matter who they are, they find a sense of security in knowing what is theirs. This is my house. That's my car. This is my stuff. And if, if you've ever been robbed, you know the sense of violation that comes from that, especially if someone comes into your home and, and takes your things. You, you've been violated. If you've watched documentaries of the Holocaust, many, many, many of us have, you've likely seen videos of Jews having just been plundered and displaced. And what, what, what is the look on their face? They, they look like the walking dead. They are in shock because of what's happened to them. They've been stripped of the most basic sense of security that, that one can have in this life. These believers that the author is writing to, they were plundered. Their stuff was taken from them because they named the name of Jesus. But they've also had friends who've, who've endured such difficulties. At the end of verse 33, he brings up that their friends went through those same things. Public insults and afflictions. And remember again that it can be more painful to watch someone else suffer. I mean, how many of us have wished that we could take the place of a spouse or, or a child or a friend who's suffering a difficult time? Why do we think that way? Why do we think, I wish I, wish I could step into that person's place. I wish I could trade with them. Why? Because the pain of our own suffering is preferable to watching a loved one suffer. And so this is not a small thing. They're watching their, their friends go through all this. At the beginning of verse 34, he recalls that some of their friends were thrown into prison for being Christians. I mean, imagine that, that, that Pastor Jason, you watch him be arrested and thrown into jail for no other reason than being a Christian pastor. Imagine how painful it would be to visit him there in prison for simply being faithful to the Lord. Now, I ask you to consider how would you respond to these things if you were these recipients? You had endured public insults. You had endured the loss of your own property. And you had walked through all of this with, with friends, even as they're suffering the same things and even being imprisoned. What would you have done? What would the average modern professing believer have done if they'd been through these things? Answering that question could be a very convicting exercise for us. 
But I'd like to highlight here what the author highlights, which is not how they suffered or what they suffered, but his emphasis is on how they responded. Now, remember, what, what, what is the temptation for these people? There, there could be any number of temptations, but the foremost and, and, and the big concern of this book is, is the temptation to walk away. I mean, that's the easiest way to make this stuff go away. And, and Jesus warned about this. Do you remember the, the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13? The sower went out to sow and the seed fell on different kinds of ground. And, and one of those kinds of ground was rocky ground where the seed did not have much depth of soil. And immediately that, that soil sprang up. But when the sun rose, those seeds were scorched and withered away. A few verses later, Jesus explains what all of that means. That seed that fell on rocky ground represents those who hear the Word immediately and they receive it with joy. But when tribulation and persecution arise on account of the Word, they fall away. It's a very real temptation. And, and people succumb to that temptation. How did these readers respond? Regarding the public ridicule and affliction, he says that they endured it. They endured a hard struggle with sufferings. In the context, that means that they held fast the confession of their hope even as they were being mistreated for the sake of Christ. And, and the, the progression of the struggles in this passage shows this. Public ridicule, as, as I've already mentioned, it's, it's kind of on, on the easier end of the spectrum of, of persecution. These other things, imprisonment, confiscation of property, those are escalations beyond public insult. And that indicates that they maintained their profession of faith in Christ at the beginning. Otherwise, the trouble would have stopped right there. That's the whole reason that they're tempted to abandon Christ now, to, to stop claiming Christ so that all of the, the friction with society goes away. But they held fast, and so things escalated. How did they respond to the confiscation of their property? Look at verse 34. They joyfully accepted it. So many other ways to respond to that. So many other ways. Again, how, how would you respond? Th they could have resisted with force. They could have appealed to the authorities. They could have accepted it, but with hatred and despair. But they accepted it joyfully. What about when their friends were publicly ridiculed and afflicted? They were partners with them, he says. That is, they, they didn't disown them. There was no, you know, when, when, when society, the government, whoever it was that was doing the persecuting, when, when, when they come around, these believers were not like Christian, pointing to their friends. But no, they were embracing these people. No, that, that's my fellow Christian. That's my partner in the faith. That they, they displayed solidarity with those folks. The same when these people were thrown into prison. They had compassion on them. Now, now, what does he mean by this? You had compassion. I would suggest to you that he's not just saying, you felt really bad for these people. And I would say that because prison in ancient Roman times, it's not like prison now, where you, 
you have a roof over your head and, and food and Netflix. It wasn't like that, but, but, but rather you had nothing in prison under Rome. Absolutely nothing. You, you, had, you had confinement, and that's about it. If you were going to eat, if you were going to have clothes, if you are going to have anything, people from outside the prison had to bring it to you. And I would suggest to you that that's what he means by the fact that they had compassion on them. They met those needs. These readers, they were going to the place where their friends were incarcerated. They were bringing them food and clothing, etc. And by that, demonstrating to everyone around, I love this person. I love this Christian. They identified themselves with those outcast believers. And throughout history, identifying yourself with other believers who are being persecuted, that tends to bring heat upon you. Why would they do this? Why, why are they responding in these particular ways to this suffering? Why respond this way? Look at verse 34 again. He says, you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now, there in verse 34, he's, he's directly contrasting that, their, their future possession, with their earthly possessions being confiscated. But this also serves as a reason for their endurance of all their suffering. They endured insults, afflictions, loss of property, and all their friends suffering and imprisonment for one reason. And it's not simply that they, they believed that the new Jerusalem existed. It's not just that they believed that the better Eden was coming, but that it was theirs. He says, you knew that you have a better possession and an abiding one. That is a great picture of faith. The new Jerusalem, it isn't here yet. The new heaven and new earth doesn't even exist because the current heaven, the current earth, haven't yet been destroyed because Jesus hasn't returned. And yet the author says that these believers, they knew that it was theirs. That is, they, they knew that they already had it. Now, how can that be the case? How can it be the case that they, that they believe they, they have a better and abiding possession that doesn't yet exist? Look back up at verse 23. He who promised is faithful. Everything that God has done as the fulfillment of His promises indicates the certainty that He is the same God of this outstanding promise, this outstanding promise being that His people will enter His rest. And because He is the same God who made the promise and has been keeping promises since then, they can know that that promise, that they will enter God's rest, that it will be kept. And what Christ has already done secures their entrance into it. This statement here, you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That is just another way of saying you trusted in Christ to bring you to glory. That is how you were able to endure in the past. And so he calls them to remember that suffering and remember how they responded and remember what it was that fed that endurance. Now, what's the point of all of this? Why, why, is he, why is he pointing backwards? He's saying, look at what trusting in Christ has done in your life in the past. Clinging to Jesus in faith not only endured you, 
not only enabled you to endure difficulty, but to endure difficulty with great godliness. So, what about, what about us? What about you? What does your past say? Think, think through the years, the months. Where have you been tested by suffering due to your discipleship? Whether it's something that you directly endured or someone that you love endured, where were you mistreated for following Jesus? Where were your close friends and loved ones mistreated by following Jesus? How did you endure that? How is it that that you find yourself here in the place of still following Jesus? How did you come through without walking away, without denying the faith? You trusted in Christ to bring you to glory. So, he gives us the second part of this exhortation. Retain your confidence. Retain your confidence. Verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Don't throw away your confidence. Now, we we could easily misunderstand the word confidence here, and, and, and if we did misunderstand it, we might think, well, he's saying don't throw away your self-confidence based on your prior endurance of difficulty. So, so we might think that the author of Hebrews is saying something like, hey, you got this. It's not what he's saying. It's more like Jesus has got this. And we, we know that that's how we should understand this word confidence because of how he's repeatedly used the word confidence. In, in, in the letter. In each case, when he uses the word confidence, he refers to our boldness, our boldness to enter God's presence because of what Christ has done. Our boldness to enter God's presence because of what Christ has done. You can look at him use that word in, in 3.6, 4.16, and just a few verses back here in chapter 10, in 10.19. We can draw near to God We can approach the throne of grace because Jesus has paved the way by His atoning death, resurrection, and enthronement at the right hand. Here He's referring back to that knowledge that we have of a a better and abiding possession. You endured before because you knew that you had a better and abiding possession. Don't throw away that confidence of a better and abiding possession by rejecting Jesus who is the one who takes you there. It's like expecting to get to the end of the line when you're jumping off the train. Stick with Jesus. He is the one who who takes you there. To reject Jesus is by extension to throw away one's confidence to enter God's presence. All of this recalling that He has exhorted us to in those earlier verses of our passage, especially how we have endured in the past, He's saying all all of that stuff, don't throw that away. Don't throw away your confidence that because of Christ you have a better and abiding possession. Why? Why not throw that away? Because you still need to endure. You still have need of endurance so that you will receive the possession. So that once you have finished this life, once you have traversed the, the rest of your life in 
obedient faithfulness, then you will receive the possession. Remember what the author has argued already in this, in this letter, primarily in chapters 3 and 4? He has taught us very clearly that one must believe until the end in order to inherit God's Sabbath rest. Those who quit the race, those who jump off the train, they forfeit the prize. They will not get to the destination. There is no other way to understand Hebrews and taking its words seriously. So you've got to keep running. And he's saying here, Continue running now the way that you ran in the past. Retain in your mind as your motivation and foundation what Christ has secured for those who follow Him in faith. And He has secured a better and abiding possession in eternity. He elaborates on this in the coming verses, this final piece of exhortation, which is persevere in faith. Persevere in faith. Hebrews 10.37, 4, and here he quotes the Old Testament, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not de- delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So we have here at the close of the chapter, part warning and part encouragement. Jesus is coming soon. And in the grand scheme of the the timeline that is salvation history and into eternity, in, in the context of that, the race is nearly over. There's just a little way to go. Because Jesus is coming, and when He comes... The righteous are going to be separated from the doomed on the basis of faith at the end of the race. Here, shrinking back is equivalent to not trusting in Christ. In verses 38 and 39, shrinking back is contrasted with faith. So, if you you look at those couple of verses again, verse 38 and 39, the beginning of verse 38, those of faith are the righteous ones who, the end of verse 39, preserve their souls. Those who shrink back, look at the end of verse 38, they do not please God and therefore they are, the beginning of verse 39, they are destroyed. Now, when he uses that phrase, my soul has taken no pleasure in him or will take no pleasure in him, that's not a reference to pleasing God in the sense of I please God by earning his favor, by doing good works. Clearly, that is not what this author intends by that. In verse 38, he does not say, my righteous one shall live by works. Rather, he says, my righteous one shall live by faith. Faith is how anyone has ever been saved from sin and death. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This very section has already shown that trusting in Christ, trusting in Christ, faith pleases God. Not that it earns salvation, but God likes it when people trust in Jesus. It displeases Him when they reject Jesus. That was abundantly clear last week, was it not? Verses 26 through 31, where we saw that on that last day, for those who have heard the gospel clearly 
and have rejected it on the last day, they're not just going to be suffering for, for generic ungodliness, but on top of that, they are specifically going to suffer for rejecting Jesus, for not trusting in Him. Jesus is coming back. It's not going to be long. Shrink back and you're doomed. Persevere in faith in Christ and you're preserved. Now, that's, that's like the warning part. Verse 39 is pure encouragement. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So he, he reaches back to the Old Testament to remind them, look, let's not forget what I taught you earlier, which is what happens when you don't follow Christ in faith. But let me encourage you. He did something very similar to this back in chapter 6. Let me encourage you. I believe you are not the kind of person that does that. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith to the preservation of their souls. All this falling away stuff, the stuff that, that I have been warning you about, that's not us. So, so let us live like what we are, which is those who persevere in faith in Christ. Persevere in faith in Christ. Keep believing. Keep clinging to Him. How do we do that? How do we cling to Christ? What's the nuts and bolts of perseverance? Remember, He's already given it to us. Look back to verses 26, 26 and all the way through 39. All of that is intended us, intended to move us to employ the practices of perseverance that are indicated in verses 19 through 25. So, if we think back to the passage from, from last week, verses 26 through 31, having pondered all that will come if we don't persevere, and now our passage this morning, and having persevered our past, I'm sorry, pondered our past perseverance and what fueled that, namely our confidence in a future reward through Christ, let's persevere by verses 19 through 25. First of all, drawing near to God. Let us draw near to God. Let meaningful fellowship with, with the Father in the power of the Spirit, through the work of the Son, let that be our daily sustenance. Enter God's presence through mindful reading of His Scriptures and mindful expectant prayer and feed on that fellowship. That is a practice of perseverance. That is something that you can put on the calendar and say, right now this morning, I am practicing perseverance. Second, hold fast the confession of your hope. Hold fast the confession of your hope. That is, saturate your mind with the gospel and let that gospel be the standard by which you evaluate all other truth claims. And upon the basis of that evaluation, in light of the gospel, you accept anything that coincides Reject anything that contradicts. That is something you can put on the calendar. It's a practice of perseverance. You, you can put it on the calendar and say, I am practicing perseverance by filling my mind with more and more of the standard of truth. Whenever I read some, something, it could be a Christian book, it could be a secular book, when I watch something on Netflix, when I have a conversation with anybody, all the time I'm taking that standard out and measuring everything that's being said to me, measuring it by the gospel. I'm accepting what coincides. 
I'm rejecting what contradicts. It's a practice of perseverance. Third, encourage others to live a lifestyle indicative of faith. Encourage others to live a lifestyle indicative of faith. In other words, do life with other believers in the context of a local church. Stir them up and allow them to stir you up to love and good works as you all expectantly look toward Christ's drawing near. That's a practice of perseverance, something you can put on the calendar. So so we find here in Hebrews chapter 10, very practical instruction regarding what to do with all of this Jesus stuff that he's been talking about for chapters and chapters. This is what you do. Draw near to God. Hold fast the confession of your hope. Encourage others to do the same. Practice these things and so endure to the end. Let's pray. Father, first of all, we thank you for the former days that each of us have when we have been tested in our faith and you enabled us to endure by looking to Christ, by looking to that better possession, that abiding possession. We pray, Father, that that we would all take, take the time today to ruminate on those things, to think about how We've endured in the past, how we've endured with godliness and why we were able to do it. And Lord, let us then once again turn to Jesus and cling to Him, recognizing faith in Him and the power that He gives us from His throne of grace is what has enabled us to endure in the past. And we pray, Father, that we would do that in the future. Some of us, perhaps, who are waiting for something to happen to us. Waiting for something external to us to act upon us. Father, help us to take seriously the words of, these, of this text. These are commands that you've given us. Help us to obey these commands. To draw near to you. To hold fast the confession of hope. And to encourage others. Please use these things as means to our crossing the finish line of faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name.